Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our series, podcast series on American history. We'll begin today with podcast number 22. In podcast 21, we discussed the Bill of Rights, what rights were extended to Americans that, again, mythically believed were automatically granted to us upon the acceptance of the Constitution of the United States by nine, initially nine of the 13 states. Again, as we discussed, that's, these Bill of Rights don't happen for a, a full two years later. But the Constitution and the subsequent amendments is the law of the land moving forward in the early 1790s. Benjamin Franklin, it turns out, was ultimately correct in his prediction or assessment. What I mean by that is that at the very end of the Constitutional Convention, when every man, all but two, I should say, or three, excuse me, had signed the Constitution to go ahead and forward this now to the 13 individual states, Benjamin Franklin was so impressed, so happy, that at least they'd gotten somewhere in, on that famous September 17th that is now for us in America called Constitution Day, that he asked George Washington to stand up, step aside from his chair, and that's when Benjamin Franklin pointed to Jefferson's chair, the very back of it, the top of it. I've seen this chair myself. I can attest to how clear the carving is. Nobody, to our knowledge, ever gave that chair or any chair there a second thought. And not only was Benjamin Franklin focusing on, he was focusing on the very top middle. And if you have an opportunity, go to Google or search engine of your choice and just type in the top of Washington's chair. And you're going to see that image of a sun, half of a sun, over water. And that's when Benjamin Franklin said to the gathering there that since the day the convention started, he had often wondered, was that a setting sun or a rising sun? And now, with the vast majority of men still at the convention having signed that instrument, Franklin was confident that indeed, that was a rising sun. So then, in podcast 22, let's move forward for the United States of America to operate under this thing called a constitution. Mind you, we're going to be the first country to experiment with a constitution in the form of a democratic Republican democracy, or a republic, as I should say, that it is a division of power between a central or federal government and the individual states. Power is not granted to the federal government, get kicked back to the states. No country in the history of the planet had experimented with that idea. Yet, we were trying it out for the first time. Again, the monarchs around the world laughing at us 
because we didn't have anybody that was above that law, that was above that constitution. No, the constitution is the law of the land. No human being is above it. The laughing stock in 1789, today, arguably, we are one of the youngest countries. 245 years old this July 4th. And yet, despite how young we are, remember again, France and England are almost twice our age. China has had one monarch twice as long, just one reign of a monarchy, uh, monarchical family that is twice our age, right? The Han Dynasty. So we're so still young, right? Yet we have the world's oldest constitution at the federal level. The only other constitution that is still in effect that has never been rewritten to date is that of the state of Massachusetts, as I mentioned earlier. So what then do we do now in 1792, moving forward now that the Constitution has taken its into effect? Well, first off, we have to have a president. And it's part of the reason why so many of the men that hated the idea of having a chief executive was willing to kind of look the other way on this. Because George Washington, it was assumed, would be America's first president. And he didn't let anybody down. He stood for quote-unquote election. He also, therefore, is our only president to date to truly run what we would call unopposed. Nobody dared to challenge the credentials of George Washington. Challenge him on education? He'd lose to almost every founding father there at the convention. Challenge him based on political experience? He's a goner. There's no way he'd win. You couldn't even challenge him on military experience because many of the founding fathers fought with him. Alexander Hamilton was his aide-de-camp. James Monroe was his right-hand man on the battlefield. But nobody risked their their life for as long and to the depth that George Washington risked it. England flushed through five field marshals. We only had one, and the one defeated all five, right? So it was a given that he was going to become the president. So what then are his duties as president of the United States? And that's where the Constitution, for the first time, and I promise you, listeners, not the last time that that Constitution is going to be frustratingly vague as to what the words mean. In terms of the foundations of a new government, George Washington is duly elected with the second most number of votes going to John Adams, who therefore by default becomes George Washington's vice president. Therein lies arguably one of the greatest weaknesses. Okay, call it a blunder that the person that wins the most votes most votes as president, second most votes as vice president. Sure, on paper, that sounds great. But in reality, it's a disaster waiting to happen. And it, it is a time bomb that will explode on the young republic. But to put this into perspective in modern times, let's go back to 20, the election of 2016. If the founding fathers, the way they wrote it was never modified, hint, hint, in the 12th Amendment, that the person that receives the most votes as president, second most votes as vice president. You know what that means, ladies and gentlemen? That meant Trump was president and his vice president would be Hillary Clinton. Sure. Yeah, I can only imagine how that 
work would have been done, right? Between the two of them, how that relationship would have dwelled. <laughs> yeah, I would have paid anything to be a fly in the wall there. Or if you want to just go on popular vote, then Hillary won. And then Trump would have been her vice president. Good luck with that, right? So again, we'll see why and how that eventually rears its ugly head as being a true fault of the constitutional, at the constitutional conventions committed by our founding fathers. But again, folks, they're human. They had no template to look to, no other country to look at to say, hey, well, they did it this way. Let's try it. So when Washington comes in, he comes in then as elected and takes the oath of office on April 30th of 1793. And it's there that George Washington, I apologize, 1789, April 30th, 1789, the election was set in 1788. But there is when George Washington comes in as president, but the quirkiness of that term begins to start confusing people. No different than arguably it does today. President versus presidency. Is that two ways of saying the same thing? And first off that I want to unpack is that it definitely does not. The president and the presidency are two very different things. Sure, a lot of common denominators, but they're also very distinctly different things. The president is the human being. What president are you referring to? Which human? All the way up until now with the election of Joe Biden, he's still president-elect. But when you mention president, the average person is going to say, well, of the 45 we've had, which one? Right? Which human being? The presidency has nothing to do with the human being. The presidency is what the Constitution outlined, that the person in that office is going to be responsible for, what he's going to do. And, of course, they're only using he's, whereas if we had a time machine and could go up all the way through to the election of 2020 and the founding fathers could see exactly which man won each election, it wouldn't surprise him. You see, like I said, we were right all along. It's a he. No, eventually it's going to be a she. We're long overdue for a she, a qualified she, just as we need qualified men to win as well. But the point being is that with George Washington, he's president in the office of the presidency. It's a term that's going to begin at 12 noon for him on April 30th, 1789, until and if he decides to run again for election in four years. Eventually then becomes March 4th as Inauguration Day from 1793, all the way through to the presidential inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt for his third term in 1937. Then it will switch to January 20th of that year and continue on from there. So, the presidency, again, is the office. And a, a quick example, I just want to clarify here. Again, I'm not trying to justify or stick up for anyone's president's actions, good, bad, or otherwise. But uh, Bill Clinton got a, received a lot of negative flack when the Monica Lewinsky story broke out because of all these lawyers that were hovering around Bill Clinton. And people, of course, wondered, how much is that costing me? How many of my tax dollars are going to pay for all of them? The fact of the matter is Bill Clinton only had one attorney that was truly working on his behalf. At first, it was David Kendall, and then his next attorney was Vernon Jordan. Mind you, they were both doing this pro bono. Not that that matters, but that was, but that was Bill Clinton, citizen of the United States who happens to be president. That was his attorney. Those other attorneys that you saw wielding around him were not protecting him. 
And arguably, you could say it actually hurt him and led to his impeachment because of the people that they allowed Ken Starr, the prosecuting attorney, to, uh, to question who was allowed to testify. They were protecting. They're the lawyers that are always on the clock regardless of which man is president of the United States, because they are protecting, they are the lawyers for the office of the presidency. So when as, as a challenge, a situation comes to challenge the president, yes, he as a citizen of the United States, a man up to this point, a man, a human being, of course he's going to respond to things as a person, as a human being. But he doesn't have the luxury of stopping there the way almost all of us Americans do. It's the lawyers for the office of the presidency that will not allow him or allow him to do certain things because the lawyers for the office of the presidency, what they're concerned about is what might this president do now that's going to negatively affect the next president of the United States. Vernon Jordan and David Kendall, they were worried about Bill Clinton, the man. The other lawyers were worried about the office of the presidency as outlined by the founding fathers in the subsequent amendments. So George Washington, he's not thinking about any of that, of course, when he comes in, right? We're talking a man here that arguably only had up to the equivalent of what we believe is a second grade education. However, there is a reason why George Washington is constantly rated amongst the top three presidents throughout all of American history. Some do argue that he should not be allowed to qualify at all in the rankings, that he should just automatically be considered number one or he should be taken out of the running. Because there's one thing that George Washington will not have to deal with, that every other president from John Adams, his successor, all the way through to President-elect Joe Biden is going to have to deal with. And that's the messes, the pluses, the minuses, the accomplishments of their immediate predecessor and the predecessors before them. In other words, George Washington is the only president of the United States that comes in with a completely clear or clean chalkboard. He doesn't have to worry about any of the marks and writing left on that board from prior presidents. He's got a clean slate. And this is where George Washington's genius comes through. Because he will do more to set the standards for what we expect out of our American president than those founding fathers collectively ever put in that thing called the Constitution of the United States Article 2. No, that he went into, he did so much more than that. First off, is to say, he doesn't have anything to deal with in the sense of prior messes from a, from a prior presidency. But likewise, however, everything that he does is a first. Just to clear the air, yes, he is the wealthiest president of the United States at that time and will be for the next almost 200 years. Adjusting dollars into 2012 currency or values, George Washington had the equivalent of what we believe was about a half a billion dollars in land and other assets. That made him the wealthiest president and was only knocked into the second place by that of the election of the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. Kennedy, however, was old money 
but it didn't matter. As president of the United States, his value, his value to states was around roughly $1 billion, double that of George Washington. John F. Kennedy held that title all the way until 2016, with Donald Trump blowing both Washington and John F. Kennedy into second and third place. That can, as I sometimes will see disgruntled faces on my students, lead them to believe that do you have to be a millionaire to be president? Do you have to have an unbelievably thick checkbook? And the answer to that unequivocally is no. We've had too many presidents, and I will cover them in these podcasts and as I do in my classes, who largely did not have two dimes to rub together. Yeah, Chris, but I'm sure you're going to be talking about just those early presidents in the 1800s. What about today, though, in the 20th century? Heck, not only will I talk about president as examples of this in the 20th century, I'm going to bring you up to the 21st century. Yeah, literally the 2000s. Don't believe me? When you go home, and you can go ahead and I'll tell you when to stop it if you don't want the answer given away, I want you to jump on to Google, and I want you to type this in the search engine. Check, please. That's right. Type in check, please, with an exclamation point. And watch the videos that come up. Check, please, was nothing more than a, from a PBS station in Chicago, WTTW, the equivalent of our Channel 25, WVIZ, well, WP, uh, WTTW is the public uh, channel there in Chicago. And they had this restaurant gig where these people would volunteer, and nursery was volunteer, and then in some cases were paid a, uh, basically a stipend or a pittance to go to local restaurants around the Chicago area, restaurants and diners and coffee shops, and just order something on the menu and rate it. It was a restaurant rating show. It was all it was. It was a half hour. It was no big deal. It didn't have high ratings. And you'll be surprised of who one of those people that actually did that for a couple of extra bucks. I'll stop it here. If you want to stop the, uh, the podcast now and then come back later. For those of you that are still listening, can't wait to find out who it is. I don't want to keep you up at night and be blamed for that. Um, but that individual is somebody that literally was doing this part-time gig because they were having trouble making him and his wife making their ends meet financially. In fact, this future president of the United States actually went to see Al Gore get nominated for the presidency in August of 2000. And there he could not get a hotel room because his credit cards were maxed out, his debit card was empty, and when he offered to write a check, the hotel lobby, uh, lobby assistants basically laughed at him and said, next. He goes out to a payphone, calls his wife, tries to read her the riot act why there's no money in the checking account. As his wife astutely uh, responded, I could have either paid the credit card bill or I could have paid the uh, payment on our Chrysler 300, the very car that you drove to the airport. What would you like me to have paid? He finally calmed down and said, I've got to get a part-time job. And that was the part-time job he got. In August of 2001, there sat a college professor by the name of Barack Obama that was ordering something from a kitchen there in Hyde Park and was attempting to try to rate it to the best of his ability with his coworkers. Did any of those coworkers sitting around him have any idea that the man sitting across from them was the next president of the United States? It truly was number 44 with George W. Bush 43 in the White House. That's number 44 seven years from now. But that's what our founding fathers wanted. 
Mind you, I'm not trying to praise Obama. I'm not trying to put him on a pedestal or take him off of one. Again, as I say, my students and hopefully my listeners can never figure out where I lean politically. That's not my point here. But the fact is you don't have to be a millionaire, right? And that's, that's what, again, I'd want to stress there. So within this then, and by the way, that Chrysler 300 that they had trouble making the payments on, it is estimated that if they were to put that car up for auction now, that they would fetch no less than a million dollars, simply because of whose name would be on the title of the prior owner of the car, right? All right, so with George Washington coming in, they're immediately upon receipt of the office and hearing about the election results automatically puts him into his first little quandary. What's his title? All the way up until that point, it had been general. Why not continue it? George Washington didn't want to continue it. His concern? Does that leave the idea and the example that anybody that's going to be president of the United States must have military experience? He didn't think it necessary. The founding fathers didn't state it, so why should he modify it? So he insisted that he not be called General Washington, not while he's in office. So they scratched their heads, more or less, Congress and his advisors, and finally it's George Washington that said, well, until we figure something out, let's just take that title and throw that given prefix in front of it, salutation, Mr. And that's where the term Mr. President comes from. And it's a title that no president of the United States will ever want to modify. It's a title that becomes honorary the moment that they are no longer in office, which is the reason why every former president of the United States, should you ever have the opportunity to meet one, will always be Mr. President or eventually Madam President, right? It is true that he also allowed others to refer to him as His Excellency. Yes, that did rub some people the wrong way, which is the reason why it wasn't pushed. He certainly didn't demand it, but he thought it different than any other title, which is the reason why he chose it. But again, as I say to some of his critics, silent critics or passive aggressive critics, they did take uh, ex uh, some exception to that title. But with the idea of Mr. President, no, that was uh, roundly accepted with no um fighting on that point at all. And that's, again, what remains all the way through to the 21st century. It would be Mr. President that would say this answer more than any other answer he would give to constituents looking for a favor, looking to have them over for dinner, for lunch, for coffee, for tea. And that would be no, or nicely put, no thank you. That two-letter word no as we know, ladies and gentlemen, that that is the very word that sets off human beings into that stage known as the terrible twos. The terrible twos, folks, doesn't start at the average human baby simply because, boom, they're two years old now and they're going to suddenly going to become a pain in the ass. Now, some of them start long before. My mother was the first to remind me I was one of those babies that learned to be a pain long before I was two. But the reason we call it the terrible twos is because that two-year-old now wants to think independently and do things that are not appropriate or not right or downright not safe. So that two-year-old begins to hear that pesky little word no more than they ever have before, and they fight back on it. That's what the terrible twos are. Well, the president of the United States, upon receiving or taking that oath of office, also finds out just how detrimental that not saying that word no really is to the point, folks, that in a given day, 
the president of the United States is liable to say yes to no more than two different types of invitations or two different demands on his time or two different demands for a signature. Everything else is a no. And as former presidents have written in their biographies, the people you say yes to will never be your problem. It will always be those you say no to. How does a commoner meet or see the president? Nobody knew. The Constitution didn't lay that out. But George Washington, with our first national headquarters there in New York City, he thought it important that there be available time for commoners to see him. And he deemed that to be roughly between the hours of 12 o'clock and 3 p.m. Think about that. Can you imagine going back to our proverbial time machine in any of the eight years that George Washington is in office and sneaking into that basically inconspicuous little house there of where the president works from, because we don't have a national capital per se yet, and imagine that between the hours of 12 and 3, we're liable to see George Washington sitting in a guest chair available to anybody and everybody who wants to see him within those hours. But you see, it was equal and open to everybody. First come, first serve. You don't think that's important? Despite the fact that we're going to have a President Madison that's going to have to lead America during the War of 1812, the way a future Abraham Lincoln is going to spend $600 million in four years fighting the American Civil War, Woodrow Wilson fighting World War One, Franklin Roosevelt battling the Great Depression. Those presidents, all of them, carve out some time between noon and three to be available for, as Washington put it, the commoner. That literally, again, is a policy that, that only ends with uh, Franklin Roosevelt because of the concerns for his personal security. Please note that in terms of the presidency, when we begin the next podcast, yes, there is no doubt that the president of the United States today definitely operates in a capacity that the founding fathers had never most likely ever dreamed of. A vehicle called a beast, another vehicle called Air Force One, a motorcade. I am the only, the president of the United States is the only citizen in the United States to actually receive his own. All of these things will be discussed in the next podcast. Yes, something that the founding fathers never, ever could have dreamed of. But please note, As much in as high a stature as we bestow on our presidents of the United States, look at the percentage of those that never made out of office alive. And those that did survive all four or eight years, why did it look as though that they became the walking dead? Why have so few presidents, after they left office, ever wanted to say that they would run again? Why did some presidents call it the worst job in human creation? That's what we'll look at when we begin the next podcast. So between now and then, thank you for listening. Go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions you might have, comments or book recommendations. If you like what we discussed, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. And today can be a good day or a bad day, but it can only be that way 
with your permission. So make it a great day. See you next time. Thank you.